Good morning. Well, we have looked at uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, make disciples. Disciples make disciples. That's one thing we've learned about discipleship and following. And then uh, disciples follow Jesus. We saw that in Matthew 4, 17 through 22. And uh, two Sundays ago, we looked at disciples are leaders. Uh, drawing again from Matthew and especially uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 2. Disciples make disciples. Disciples follow Jesus. Disciples are leaders. And this morning, disciples are laborers. Disciples are laborers. And we saw that uh, disciples make disciples even if they're unfinished. We're not finished. We don't have to wait until we're finished to be a disciple maker. And of course, disciples are disciples because they follow Jesus. Following him is the most important requisite. And disciples are leaders because they follow Jesus. The closer they follow Jesus, the more they lead people to see Jesus, to hear Jesus, to know Jesus. They lead people to Jesus. But today I want us to look at Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, as we consider disciples are laborers. And I want to explain why. So let me read it to you, starting at verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Disciples are laborers, but it's a labor that the Lord gives us. It's a work that he gives to his disciples. We're not just any laborers. We're laborers in the work that Jesus gives us to do. And that is a labor of love. We really see that in verse 36. It's a labor of love. He had compassion on them. It's also a labor with a shepherd's heart. And we see that as well. He says that the crowds were like sheep without a shepherd. And then we see in the final verses that it's a, a labor and it's a work which can't wait. And Jesus says, the harvest is ready, it's plentiful. We're not waiting for the harvest. The harvest is here. And then he says, pray the Lord of the harvest because we've got a great harvest and too few workers. And there is an appeal 
to the urgency of harvesting. Well, let's consider this labor of love with a shepherd's heart in a work that can't wait. That is the work that we've been called to as laborers, as his disciples. Looking again at verse 36, seeing the crowds, he had compassion for them. The compassion of Jesus is a defining characteristic of Jesus' ministry. It is, I think, a unique expression of the love of God, a distinctive expression of the love of God. And I see it that way because when I think of uh, the strategies of ministry or the strategies of leadership or the strategies of church growth or the strategies of discipleship, And oftentimes, you get that summary, you know, five bullets, ten musts, four necessary things. And compassion is never listed among them, and yet it's compassion that compels the ministry of Jesus Christ. In qualifications of leadership, no mention of compassion. And yet, what's leadership without people? Because people are the object of compassion. Or in church growth seminars, what's a church without people? Can you have a church without people? Or in steps of successful discipleship, what's a disciple without someone to disciple? Jesus had a different bottom line. How's that saying go? Church would be perfect without people. And yet that is the very bottom line for Jesus, people. People are a labor of love. They're not interruptions. Sometimes we think people are interruptions to what we're doing, what's important, what we're set out to accomplish. And in this world, with its philosophies and objectives, that's very much the case. Sometimes we need to brush aside those people because they're getting in the way of what's really important. But that's not the way Jesus sees it. People are his product. People are not interruptions to the ministry. They are the ministry. And I think of this strikingly, just for an example in Luke chapter 7, because we we get a series of examples that I think all attest to the strategy of Jesus and how counter it is to the strategies of our world and our thinking. It starts with him making a trip to a town called Nine. And with him are his disciples and a crowd of people as they're nearing the gates of the town ushered out is a what we'd call a funeral. And there's a, a beer or pallet upon which they're carrying a body and it's a young man. It's accompanied by his mother, and she, we're told, is a widow. 
And this is her only son. And you probably wouldn't know this, but it becomes apparent as you study the times that widows were often kind of left behind. And they fell into great need because with their husbands deceased, they had no means in many cases. They were subject to a number of different kinds of uh, uh, rip-offs. Uh, they could be taken advantage of. And in this case, not only has she lost her husband, but now she's lost her only son. And what does it tell us? It tells us in verses 11 through 17 that Jesus... He observed this, he saw it, and he was moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. And compassion is never inactive. A compassion, a distinctive or a unique, a qualifying component of the definition of compassion is that it acts. It doesn't just observe. And he makes his way to this funeral procession and he tells her, do not grieve. And he puts his hand on the body of her only son and raises him from the dead. Now, Matthew goes on to characterize the impact of this. And I suppose we could see that as a strategy, you know? Uh, you're going to get attention if you raise people from the dead. Uh, you're going to, you know, really send out the word you're going to make a splash. People are going to be attracted to you if you raise people from the dead. But that's not why Jesus did it. He did it because he had compassion. A following story, just a little later on in chapter 7, Jesus is the guest, the special guest of a religious leader. Uh, it, his name is Simon. And Jesus is reclining at table with, with other distinguished persons who've been gathered to hear and see Jesus. In fact, there's the implication that he's getting a reputation as something of a prophet. While he's reclining, a woman comes in and immediately they recognize her. In fact, she's labeled a sinner, which suggests to us that she has a reputation uh, as a prostitute. Although it's not stated as such, it's enough that she's called a sinner. And she brings some ointment, and uncharacteristically, she anoints his feet, and she begins to wipe them with her hair. And Simon and the other guests are put off by this because, in fact, it said, if he was a prophet, he would know who was doing this. And uh, the idea is that he wouldn't allow that, that he wouldn't, he wouldn't allow a sinner to come and touch him and to attend to him like that, that he would isolate himself from that sinner because Holy people, prophetic people, people who are religious and uh, especially devoted to God would know better than to have any association with people who are 
unclean and sinners and obviously not equally devoted and dedicated to God as is the holy one or the prophetic one or the religious one. And Jesus becomes aware of this and he says, Simon, and everybody's listening, he says, Simon, a moneylender was owed sums by two debtors. One owed the moneylender 500 denarii, and one owed the, the moneylender 50 denarii. He says the moneylender canceled both debts, just tore them up, crossed them out. It was though they hadn't owed him a thing. No, no strings attached. He says, Simon, who, who would love more? The one that was forgiven 50 or the one who was forgiven 500? And Simon said, the one who was given, forgiven more. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. He says, Simon, when I came in, my feet were dirty. I was dusty. Not one of your attendants, not you, did anything for me, as would be expected of a guest. But he said, this woman here, has shown great love. And she says, for that reason, your sins are forgiven. It's interesting, the, the reversal there, because oftentimes Jesus says that it's actually in the forgiving that we know we are forgiven. Where there's absence of forgiveness, there is no knowledge of forgiveness. But What's striking to me is, again, in both of these instances with women, Jesus doesn't do what supposedly, I guess, strategically the best way you would imagine or that you would author a book of advice as to how to build ministry. He cares for the people that are, as it were, interruptions in his life. And strikingly, in Luke chapter 8, right after this, it says, if I turn the page, soon afterward, he went on through cities, villages, proclaiming, bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the 12 were with him, and some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Hudza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others. Jesus was surrounded by people that were not supposedly strategic in the target audience of growing a ministry. People who were interruptions. But you see, that shows the difference between the heart and the objective of Jesus' ministry and the objective of success in this world. It's a labor of love, and it really begins with compassion. We need to see people 
as Jesus sees them. Not as the law sees them, not as society sees them, not as others see them. Because if we see them that way, we'll never see them like Jesus sees them. We need to see people as Jesus sees them. And there's a dignity that is manifest, a dignity that Jesus gives them that they wouldn't even perhaps give, him, give themselves. And I think this comes from the polar doctrines that is the, two, the beginning and the end, the, the opening and the close of the Bible, the creation in which we are created in his image. What greater dignity? We don't even have time to begin to, to trace the importance of that dignity which is bestowed by God upon the way we look at other humans and the impact it has in regard to civilized treatment of people and morality in the world, which is, by the way, being severed in our perception of the way we see people and being replaced with an ambivalent, naturalistic, atheistic view of the world in which it's just a big accident. And for any moral good, we get all the prize and glory because there's no other reason just than just the goodness of our heart, but it's a weak and limited goodness. I digress. I'm off topic. But let me get back to the other end of the spectrum of the gospel, and that is that God's goal, goal for mankind, is his reconciliation, his redemption in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Genesis and the gospel, creation, and God's reconciling work in Jesus Christ, that gives each and every person a value, a worth, a purpose and so we are able, when we see others through the eyes of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus, we're able to look past faults because faults are the death of compassion. Unless we look past those faults to see needs and have a heart to meet those needs because of who people are in the eyes of God. Some of us might be thinking, John, there's, a, there's kind of a flaw in your logic here because, listen, I got to tell you, if, if I could heal the sick and raise the dead like Jesus, it would, it would certainly empower my compassion. In fact, sometimes when we don't see how we can affect an immediate need upon somebody in great need, it can exhaust our compassion. But I, I just want to express to you, I have felt that frustration in 40 years of ministry. But we'll never know that exhaustion. We'll never know even the power of God to do things beyond our capacity and our ability unless we follow Jesus right into the heart of the hurt and the need. There have been so many times that I yearn for God to just in what I saw as a, 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 just a situation of great sadness and need and wish that I could touch that person and bring healing, immediate healing 
to that person or to that situation. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't do things through us. Because I'll tell you, prayer is empowered and faith is purified when we are reaching out to people in need with the heart of Jesus Christ to be used of him in whatever way he will to care, to show not only sympathy and empathy, but help. And when we follow Jesus Christ into those situations, I can't think of a better example of a disciple showing to others what discipleship looks like and the difference Jesus makes. Where do we get compassion? Well, you know, Jesus didn't just show compassion. He taught it. And that's very, very significant. How many of us are familiar with the prodigal son? And which of us has not identified with the prodigal son? And yet, as he returns home broken, without a merit to his name, his father sees him at a distance, and it's compassion that spurs him to rise and run to his son and embrace him and restore him. It's compassion that triggers and fuels reconciliation. How about the good Samaritan? I mean, why would Jesus tell these stories unless he wasn't showcasing compassion? Setting compassion before us as something to be emulated, appreciated, treasured, and expressed. When that man beaten and left for dead was skirted by religious leaders, and they had the, I suppose, justification on their side because they're on their way from the temple and uh, to administer help to a figure like that would, would be to put them in touch with the uncleanness of blood and other things, which by the strict letter of the law would be a violation. And yet this Samaritan, who's considered a less than good follower of God, a less than good Jew, with an imperfect theology, an imperfect practice of what is right, This Samaritan, he stops and administers help to this man who's dying and attends to his needs. And what prompts him to this, which Jesus sets before us as a model for us all, compassion. He was moved to compassion. Or how about the king who was approached by a debtor who owed him 10,000 talents of silver, an incomprehensible amount, an amount probably more than I could ever earn if I spent all of my waking hours in life earning money at a good wage. He has no defense, and the king by rights could throw him into prison, sell his family as slaves, but the king tears up the debt. 
It's just, it's, I mean, it's supposed to be, whoa, when does that ever happen? And what is his motivation? He's moved to compassion. Compassion compels him to forgive, to cancel this debt. He sets him free. And what does he do when he leaves the audience of the king? This slave who's been forgiven so much, who's been given his life back, been given his family back, been given his future back, he has no compassion of his own. No compassion to forgive a fellow slave who owes him a fraction of what he's been forgiven. These are the models that Jesus uses to compel us to see the importance of compassion. Jesus has a heart of compassion. And where did Jesus get his compassion? Jesus, who is the one and only Son of the Father that John tells us in John 3.16, his gospel, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Love, the love of the Father who sends his Son. Listen, don't be confused as though compassion is something different than love, or grace is something different than love, or mercy is something different than love. They're all expressions of love. When you love And that love shows up in generosity and a gift that's undeserved. We call that grace. When that same love is applied and distributed and expressed to a person who is in great debt and doesn't have a way to get out of the debt, to even the score or pay what they owe, and you forgive it, that's called mercy. And when that love takes action, whether it's to be gracious or merciful, when it sees needs and it goes to meet those needs, it's called compassion. And it all comes from God the Father. In Exodus 33, 19, there's one word in the Hebrew that expresses mercy over and over again. In Exodus 33:19, 19, the Lord says, I will show compassion. Sometimes it's translated what? Tender mercy. Or in 34.6, he's called the God, the Father of compassion. The word compassion in Hebrew is a, a derivative of the word for womb. And many speculate that the notion of compassion is connected to that, to that emotion that we associate with the deepest filial family bonds, like the compassion of a mother or the compassion of a father for a child because they're blood relation. How can we not have compassion on a child of our own? And yet God draws upon that very image in in Psalm 103.13. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion. Isaiah 49.15, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. 
God's compassion transcends and eclipses human emotion, human pity. Because in compassion, there's a great love, not just pity, looking down, but looking over in a great dignity. David understood this when he violated God's will as a ruler who was to rule in God's way, in God's manner. He was to be an expression of God's rule, an extension of God's rule. But he took a census like other kings, and God was very upset with what David did. And he was going to be punished, and the prophet told David so. David said, when asked about his options, he says, if you had to be punished by another Who would you welcome? And David said, and I quote, let me fall into the hands of the Lord for his compassion is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. I think this is important because a lot of modern studies, psychology, there's much to be learned. Uh, If you Google compassion, it'll connect you to a lot of recent research. The very word compassion comes from the Latin cum and passion, together with and suffering. And sometimes it's thought that we have to suffer as the person suffering in order to have compassion, to co-suffer. But I want you to understand that's not the picture we get from the Bible. It's not the picture we get from the gospel. It's not the picture we get from Jesus. And it's not the way disciples are to behave. We are moved by the very compassion of God. Paul, if we just take Paul as an example in Philippians chapter 1, verse 8, we saw a quote from chapter 2 where he talked about if there is any love, any compassion, any work of the Spirit. And of course, the understanding is, of course there is. So we should consider the interests of others ahead of ourselves. But before that, in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, I feel this way for you. I have you in my heart. He says, in effect, I love you with the very compassion of Jesus Christ. And the word is the same word that is used so frequently of compassion in the Gospels and in the use of Jesus' compassion. Here it's the noun, and it's, it's not a very pretty word. It kind of sounds rather ugly. Splunknon. And it, it, it actually means the word gut or bowel, like the King James Version. And there it says, I have the very bowels of Jesus Christ. Well, the, just like the womb... The the viscera is where people feel things. It's where compassion is felt. He says, I have the very compassion of Christ for you. And then to top it off, he says, God will vouch for me. God is my witness. And who better witness to know the compassion of Jesus Christ, the heart of Christ, the love of Christ than God himself. 
It's that same sentiment that causes Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and following, when he says, God is the father of compassion. And it's out of that compassion, sometimes it's translated mercy. Again, I explained to you that compassion looks beyond faults. It doesn't hold those faults or deficiencies as an obstacle or an to impede compassion. And he says it's out of that that we're able to console and comfort and encourage. In Colossians chapter 3, turn to Colossians 3. It's really worth it. Again, this is Paul writing. Do you think he got it? And I'm going to begin at verse 8. He says, but now you must put all of them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. What makes all of those things? Well, things like my rights have been violated. I haven't been considered important enough. You know, me, me, me. He says, verse 9, don't lie to one another. See, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. They're not like me. Doesn't matter. Paul says, there are no differences. There are no obstacles. All in all is Christ. And then he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. That's what I wanted to draw your attention to. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. There are two words in the New Testament for, for compassion, and they're both right here. It's as though he's saying the compassion of compassion. And it stands at the head because it's out of compassion that we see needs and we're compelled to reach out and care for and meet needs. And if we need to, we forgive. And if we need to, we show kindness. I mean, we do whatever it takes because that's where the Lord leads us. That's what I am seeing here when it says he saw the crowds and he was moved to compassion for them. It's a, it's a labor of love. And it's a labor with a shepherd's heart. He doesn't just see them as crowds. He sees them as needy. He sees them as like sheep who are being taken advantage of or who are scattered or who are being harassed and helpless. And of course, that draws deeply and richly upon the Old Testament. Leaders were called shepherds, and they're often upbraided. For example, Ezekiel 34, the whole chapter 
God says, you leaders, you shepherds, you have failed miserably. Why? Because you've focused on yourself. You've used the sheep for your advantage. When in turn, you were supposed to use your advantages for them. And he goes on to talk about raising up one like David. He's talking about Jesus, who's going to be the shepherd. And we are his under-shepherds. Remember Peter at the end of the Gospel of John? Peter had betrayed Jesus. He felt disqualified, inferior. Jesus showed up by surprise. I guess he was probably a little sheepish about the whole thing. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Oh, you know I love you. I love you like crazy. I love you, love you. If you love me, Peter, feed my sheep. And then he asked him again, Peter, do you love me? Well, I just told you I love you. I love you, love you. I'm the lover of lovers. Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. And he did it yet a third time. And interestingly, in Peter's epistle, his first letter, in the fifth chapter, he's talking to people who have leadership responsibilities. And he says, in the first four verses of that chapter, he says, we're all under shepherds. We shouldn't be seeking our own gain. We should be seeking the benefit and advantage of those that God has given us the opportunity to help. And we should exercise direction and guidance and help because we're under shepherds of the shepherd. It's a shepherd's work. It's a labor. It's helping those who need help. But it's doing it with a shepherd's heart, a compassionate heart. Well, where is that work? What, give me a title. Give, you know, give me a title and I'll do the work. Where is it? And Jesus says, look, those crowds, they're not just crowds of people. They're God's harvest. I think it's interesting the way Jesus switches metaphors from sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless, to a harvest. Oh, wow, an abundant harvest. That's something to be elated over, to delight in. But he says, it's such an abundant harvest. And he says to his disciples, he says, the workers are few. We're in need of laborers. And the work is ready. I mean, it's not four months from now. It's not in late September or October. It's, it's here now. It's everywhere. He says, pray the Lord of the harvest. That's how urgent things are. Because in the very next chapter, in chapter 10, Jesus himself sends out his own disciples into the harvest. Into the harvest. It's a work that can't wait. I just want to impress upon us the idea that if we start following Jesus, just following him, that's the first step in becoming a disciple maker. 
just following him draws people to the one we follow and makes us leaders. And just following him involves labor. It does. It's it's not easy. If you Google compassion, you'll hear a lot about compassion exhaustion. And that's real. But in following Jesus, we find strength. And if we really depend on him, and we just see every person, even, even those that you might think, you know, even if it's a, like a Pastor John, you can, you can minister to me too. I mean, that's where it begins. It's not over there. It's not after a title. It just begins where we're at when we show compassion. My voice sounds rather divine this morning. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us, and as I close, maybe the Lord has put someone on your heart that's already within your sphere of personal contact and influence that is is difficult. And this morning, God's just touching you to look beyond their faults, to meet their needs in his power, to labor in his field seeing them not as that difficult person or that person that could be discarded, but as the person that God loves, that he wants to see redeemed, and you're his labor. If you want to pray about that or any other way in which you're laboring for the Lord in compassion with a shepherd's heart and a work that can't wait, We invite you to come and pray this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your heart. Thank you for the ministry that we have in your name, in your compassion, through faith, unlocking power to do things that are beyond our ability. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen.